is the Next Trip Podcast with Aviation Insiders Doug and Drew. Together, with more than 40 years of industry experience, they are creating a network for other app geeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about all things aviation. All thoughts and opinions are their own. Good day and welcome to Boarding Pass 221, operating on February 19th, 2024. This is Doug, an airline pilot, and I'm here with my buddy Drew, an airline ops manager and private pilot trainee. We're here to discuss aviation topics from an industry insider's perspective. Drew, you're home from your whirlwind Eurasia tour. <laughs> Last we heard from you, you were shaking off jet lag in Hong Kong. How was the rest of your trip? Did you actually end up flying over the Pacific Ocean? No. <laughs> so we went back the way I came, which is stupid, but that's the way it worked out, you know, with business class seats, mileage programs, whatnot. You mentioned jet lag. I cannot tell you if I really had jet lag. I cannot tell you I had jet lag. And I'll tell you, all, all most of my flights were like nine and ten hour flights with plenty Can I of pause you right there? Yes. I can tell you that you had jet lag <laughs> because I was about to head into a sim and you told me, go fly that Pegasus. <laughs> go like, fly the hell out of that Pegasus. I was like, no, dude, I'm in Denver for my company sims. <laughs> and I, you were like, all right, sorry, I blame it on the jet lag. <laughs> I don't think that has to do with jet lag. I think I just got confused because everything was so close because you had the Pegasus training and then you had the... Bigfoot, the triple seven training. And by the way, I want to change our uh, nickname for it to the beast because that's what we call it at work. The beast. (laughs) All right. Sorry. Keep going. You ended up in India. How was Vistara? Vistara. I got to, (laughs) you know, we talk about India and how crazy, you know, all the flights and all the people going to India. That's the one I had to buy a revenue ticket for. I could not get to, I, I was like, I can Z on Air India, Cathay Pacific, all these carriers that are that the company has agreements with. They're all full, Doug. So I ended up having to fork out two hundred and fifty dollars, which is like you know a I'm fork my in my tiny, heart. tiny fiddle for you after <laughs> flying for free in business class all over the world <laughs> in economy on Vistara of all things. But I got to try Vistara. But I got to tell you this funny story. So that's where Ian, who was on the show last week, Ian and I parted ways in Hong Kong. And Ian travels around the world. He's a member of the, what is the Holy Alliance or the Holy, the Holy Trinity. Trinity, which are the big three alliances in the world. So I'm, I'm checking in at, I'm checking at Vistara. And then the agent looks at Ian and says, Oh, do you have anything to check, sir? And Ian goes, I am not flying Vistara. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to kill me. For uh, he's not arrogant, but, you know, from someone who gets all these perks from the Holy Trinity, this is an airline he has no status with. And he was like, uh, no, I will not be. <laughs> I just thought <laughs> it was I, funny. Can I say something yes. about your Vistara experience? You mm-hmm. sent me a photo from Hong Kong mm-hmm. holding your boarding pass. And it said economy <laughs> class in big letters, but it was this gorgeous script. Yes. It was cursive. And mm-hmm. I made a comment. Wow, they make economy economy class look incredibly fancy <laughs> well they it? should for 250 dollars. how much is that in rupees that's like a hundred thousand i don't even know i mean you know in india even in economy pl- class that's probably a big thing for them to fly between hong kong and delhi and it was a nice flight doug it was a six-hour flight i got me a meal on that flight in economy the ife was excellent i saw a couple movies but Doug, the leg room was ridiculous. I could barely fit in that seat, and I'm mm-hmm. not incredibly tall. So that's one thing, Vistara, if you're listening, it would have been a perfect flight if not for that leg room. But anyway, got to India. We spent a lot of time talking about India, so we won't spend too much time on it. But the airport is magnificent. Delhi Airport, awesome. They're hoping to get to 100 million passengers 
this year. India has a lot of advantages, like the Wi-Fi worked great. I ordered a, a an Uber just like I was here. It was so convenient, so cheap. But the country, yeah, there's this neighborhood, the old, old Delhi, which is across from the Red Fort. So this is a big attraction. This is the Red Fort is where people go. That's like a, you know, an attraction in Delhi. And across from that is old Delhi. And Doug, it's like the 1950s. You know, so we talk about these gleaming airports and all this, but the, a lot of the country is still has a lot of development to see yet. And then I'm thinking, why why are the airports gleaming and a lot of the country is, has still not caught up? They need that airport as, you know, a, to funnel money into the country. So the airport has to be competitive with Singapore and Hong Kong and all those. And we have, we'll be talking about airports in the next segment. So I'll leave it there. When you went to India prior, just before the pandemic, were you in Mumbai or were you in Delhi? Uh, always Delhi. And I hear Mumbai has a beautiful airport too. Uh, Delhi, leaving Delhi, we talk about it. We were delayed for an hour for a fog. And I, I, you <laughs> can just take quotes, air quotes, <laughs> fog. And I'm sure there is fog, but the smog of Delhi doesn't help either. You couldn't even see the plane. Like I'm sitting at the gate. You can't see the plane in front That's of crazy. you. It's that bad. But we took off, um, got to Helsinki where I met Dave. Shout out to Dave who's uh, listening. You were on a 330, right? A uh, Finnair 330? I was on a Finnair 330. How was the product? It was interesting, Doug. It took a while to get used to. The bed was better than any bed I've had in business class on any airline. Hmm. It was a lot of space, completely flat. But as a seat, it was horrible. I could never get completely comfortable. So to describe a Finnair business class seat, it's not a seat. It's the whole pod is your seat. So there's a lot of space. They pad the walls of the pod that you're in. And normally an airline would have a seat in that pod. No, so you're supposed to somehow get comfortable in this almost upright pod. And if you turn to the right, it's a little bit slanted. So that's supposed to be your recline. They give you three pillows. So they I just could not get comfortable on it as a recline, but the bed was, was awesome. Did they have to make your bed? Was it like our Singapore flight from Manchester? No, they didn't make the bed. They give you uh, a, a mattress cover type thing and a blanket. Mm. It was very comfortable. Well, it was no, very did, good service. Did they have to fold the seat down? No. Or- were you no okay no no it was very easy to make into a bed flight tents were great the food was great no complaints helsinki airport was great and as i said uh i met dave there from manchester so shout out to dave he flew from manchester we spent a day in helsinki then we went to london heathrow i flew an a350 from helsinki to london and i planned that specifically i see them i see the finnair 350s in Mm -hmm. london every time i'm there yeah, and, and it was a really nice service, a full breakfast on a regional flight, two and a half hours. You're going to talk about London in this episode also. We had a 20-minute delay to push back from Helsinki going to London. We were arriving there at uh, 9 o'clock, 9 a.m. or something, so that's still That's very... the busy hour. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that a little bit. How mm-hmm. was Helsinki, though, as a city? I've never been. So we were there in the evening. We did not get to really see the city. It was freezing cold, so we're like... I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so let's run to uh, a couple pubs. People are friendly, you know. They talk about the Finns being very reserved. We did not see that. But, of course, you know, I- I'm the one... We're the ones who had to in- initiate a conversation because I'm American and we have to talk to everyone. And some people are taken aback by that. <laughs> But this guy, we got him rolling, and he talked all about Finnish history and how you have to be in the military and Russia. Yeah, got a really good um, overview of Finland. But then he wouldn't stop talking, and then we had to go to the next place. (laughs) And then he was like, one more thing. It's like, okay, so just be advised if you're going to Finland – 
start up a conversation that may go longer than you expect. <laughs> Spend the night, went to London Heathrow, went to London, stayed at the St. Pancras, which is a hotel that used to be the offices of the Midland Railway Station. So if you wow. are a, if you're a train geek, stay there because it's right on top of that. That was wonderful. Came back home on uh, our company's seven. I flew all Airbus. Ian wanted me to mention that I flew all Airbus on this trip, except a 767-300, which got me home. So lovely trip all around the world. It was about 10, 10 days. Robbie gives me a hall pass for my birthday where I can just go wherever I want. And boy, did I, I made the most use of that you did. possible. Yes, he did. In London, though, you went to the Greenwich Mean Line. Have you been there before? No, I have not been there before. I would recommend everyone go. I, you know, going to London all these times, I don't go much far far away from London. It's always in central London. So take a boat there. Uber, there's an Uber boat. Uber runs their own mm-hmm. boats, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I see the Uber boats all over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, take that from central London to uh, to Greenwich and just walk up to where the Royal Observatory is. It's a really good day trip. You can go to the museum, which is 18 pounds. We chose not to because we got there at 4 o'clock and it closes at 5. So next time, I definitely want to do that. And I sent you the pictures from there. Great views of London from up there. Great views of London and great views for Avgeeks also, because as you look up, you see the approach, you know, planes turning into uh, Heathrow from there. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, I've flown right over it. Yeah, I'm sure you have, because we saw all the heavies come over. And some, that's another thing that's great about London. You could be walking around London and a Cathay Pacific 777-300 is turning final into Heathrow. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. really a, a beautiful city. It was sunny, throngs of people out there. You just got a trip. You don't know. You've been so busy. So tell me about that. You were planning to have tomorrow off to finish all this work on your second kitchen in the backyard <laughs> which looks uh, yeah no a- it's, it's not even that it's not even that it's trying to help marissa finish up this auction for her school that she was oh, running and so just much trying work. to do all the other stuff and we're right in the throes of competition dance season with the girls so they've got lots of practices this weekend yeah yeah i got a call this morning that i got put on a trip for tomorrow i'm on like this pseudo reserve right now uh-huh. long story i won't get into it <laughs> and i still haven't <laughs> haven't really checked yet to see where it's going to give you an I have example, lots of things that it, i have lots of things i have to get through today and maybe if i have a moment i'll be able to take a look and see doug constantly obsesses over not just trips but the actual seat assignment on a flight so this is how busy it is that he hasn't even had a second to check what flight you're on what flight you're working tomorrow it could be london heathrow it could be Washington Dulles. <laughs> Just to give you an idea of how busy it is, I was up at 4.30 this morning doing board, swim swim team board member stuff at 4.30, mm. reaching out to sponsors. Oh <laughs> that's, where, that's where my life is right now. All right, so let's get to uh, your last trip, which was to Denver, where I thought you were... You're saying I had... I had uh, jet lag, but I just got confused. I thought you were training on the Pegasus KC-46, but you were actually training, uh, it was a landings class on the 777X, which I could completely see. Cause no, you no, 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 no. I wish it was on the 777X. Oh, the it was f- not. <laughs> I saw the well, that's 777X. What you, which, no, no, no. You wrote I on here, saw that. I just read. I think you, st- <laughs> you, you definitely still have jet lag. Come on, man. Okay, that's what you wrote. Saw the 777X. Yeah. On the notes. <laughs> yeah, and you just said that I was doing landings class on the 777X. All right, landings class on the 777. But there on the you notes, go. you did write 777X. I don't know why. Yes, because I saw it. I, oh, I was that's talk right. Oh, about... uh, okay, I got confused. You saw... Okay, 
Let's start with confused, the landings. Confused or jet lag? I'm, <laughs> I'm, right, I'm asking I'm for denial, the listeners Maybe I'm right in denial now. of jet lag. But <laughs> let's, all right, so first tell me about the landings class on the 777. It's like riding a bike. I know I've talked about this before. I hadn't landed the airplane since my last time in the sim three months ago, and that's our qualification. We have to do three landings in a rolling 90-day period, and because I'm pretty junior and all I've had are we call it bunky trips where I'm the reserve pilot, the reserve officer flying middle of the night across the ocean, not actually doing the landings. Every three months, then we have to go back to the sim to get our, we, we call it three bounces, three landings, basically. <laughs> it's some approach work. They refresh us on engine out stuff. We had mm-hmm. an engine failure on one of them. And then a couple of the landings were single engine landings. Yes, I'm not actually landing in the real airplane, right. but I'm getting almost better training than if I was landing in the real airplane because I was getting that engine out work. So when was the last time you actually landed? Because recently you've been one of the, um, the, the reserve pilots. Yeah. It was last fall sometime, probably, probably August or September, I think. August or September. So is Mm -hmm. this why they have these classes to keep you current? This is. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, half of the wide body fleet, or half of the pilots on the wide body fleet are in positions like me, uh-huh. where you're the reserve pilot. You only you don't do the takeoff or the landing. You get in the seat during cruise, and, and you're flying the cruise portion. So they do these la- these landings classes. And as I said to you, I got the graveyard shift mm-hmm. because we don't get the prime daytime sim slots. We get whatever is left over, which happened to be at midnight. So nothing better than doing a midnight landings class with engine work. But I'm back to being current. And th- this is how all fleets around the world or all airlines around the world, this is how they, they keep their people current. People in situations like me, mine, where you're constantly the bunkie and you're not actually senior enough to hold any of the flying positions. All right, just because I'm obsessed with landings right now, and I'm trying to perfect mine on the Cessna 172, which I'm depressed today because my flights for training flights for today and tomorrow, so my flights are always on Friday, Saturday, they're canceled because there's 25 knot winds out there right now. But anyway, so when do you on these landings, when are you taking control of the airplane? Is it a three mile final? Or how does that work? Are you doing patterns? Or you they just set you up on landing? No, it's it's full patterns. And they a couple of the approaches, we're required to hand fly the entire approach, including the the downwind, including the pattern, mm. which is good because it, it gets our hands used to flying again. There were a couple where we actually, one of them, you're required to do full automation off, not just autopilot, mm. no flight director, oh, none wow. of that. So it, it is all cross-checking, making sure you're maintaining altitude, auto throttles are off, you're you're keeping the throttles, right. you turn final, you don't have a glide path, so you're you're going visual at the pappies. Oh and the, we, we talked about it a mm-hmm. couple weeks ago, the thousand foot markers, yeah. all visual, all hand flown. And that's part of it just to get us back into the, the rhythm of things. Okay, let me ask you, I know we have to move on, but just real quick. So on the Cessna 172, my pattern is I'm at 1,000 feet. That's my, um, that's my pattern altitude. 1,000 feet on downwind. On downwind, I'm parallel to the runway, and mm-hmm. then I turn base leg, and then I'm descending at about 400 feet per minute, and then I, I'm at 75 knots. Then I turn final, and I'm just below 70. When I'm turning base, the runway is about 45 degrees from me when I look back. That's how I know. That's when I turn. 
when do you turn base on a triple seven? What's your altitude and how fast are you? If we're doing a visual traffic pattern, which we don't, we, we do that in the KC 46 and yes, it's 45 degrees off. These were instrument patterns, air, air traffic control. I do it in quotes. It was our instructor was giving us vectors. So we were on a little bit longer of a final, but on downwind, we were at 220 knots, not configured yet. Oh my God. When I turn base, that's where I call for flaps one, start to slow down. Once I'm slow enough, I get flaps five, but I turn final at 180 knots and we were at 3000 AGL. 3, so that's, uh, help me understand that. Cause if, if I'm looking and it's 45 degrees and I'm turning, you're in a triple seven going much faster Oh yeah, if it, if we were doing like, a visual, if we were doing a visual traffic pattern and it was forty five degrees off, yeah. then we yeah three thousand would be too high. I would need to be at about fifteen hundred feet. 1500, but because we yeah. were on an instrument approach, he vectored us in with a, about a ten mile final, which okay. gave us plenty of altitude or plenty of distance to be able to get configured and, and lose the altitude. And you also have to remember that on the triple, when you throw the gear out, I think we've talked about this on previous episodes. It is our best speed break that we have mm. because you're hanging six gear on each main for 12 plus the nose gear 14 right. if you can't slow down to throw the gear and you mm. will you will slow down immediately oh, so throw it the gear is so early much drag to... on the triple at what speed what's the fastest you can throw the gear down at is there oh a maximum? you're gonna put me on the spot here i don't remember off the top of my head 250 knots maybe 250 it's it's all it's it's on a placard Mm-hmm. Uh, every time we do any sort of configuration, look at the placard and just make sure you're not going to overspeed it. But 250 seems to stand out, but I could be mixing that with the KC-46 too. Yeah. No, I mean, you definitely have your experience from the KC-10 because just mastering that with a 172, it's taking me several t- patterns. And you're this is a relatively new airplane for you, and it seems like you're very comfortable doing a pattern with... Mm-hmm. No, you know, turning a lot of the instruments off, right? And base and mm-hmm. hand flying. That's yeah, great. it it goes it goes back to the reason why you're doing the patterns that you're doing right mm-hmm. now is it builds a lifetime of that skill that you could get into any airplane. Of course, instruments are going to be in different places, but you get into that lifetime skill of being able to maintain aircraft control. Doesn't matter what airplane you're flying. We do have to move on. We've gone really long on this. <laughs> Sorry. You no no that's fine. But you teased the triple seven X. Yes, I yes. wish I had been in the sim for that. I was sitting at our club in Denver, and I happened to look up, and I saw a Boeing livery. I was like, oh, that's a big airplane. That looks like it probably is a 777X. Flight Radar 24 confirmed it, and then you sent me an article saying that they were in Colorado doing high-altitude testing. I got to see them do a couple patterns. They were not doing touch-and-goes in Denver. How awesome would that have been if they were? They were doing full stops, but they were out there doing testing, uh-huh. And actually, my cousin, shout out to Jesse, I think he sometimes listens to us. He just happened to be on his lunch break and was outside because it was so nice of a day. He went is out this, and sat at is a Is this Jesse table. and Rachel that I met in Los Angeles? No, no, another Jesse. Oh, okay. But he just happened to be sitting outside eating his lunch on his lunch break, and the 777X uh-huh. flew right over his head. <laughs> he sent me some great, great photos of it. I know. Yeah, they're really great photos with the landing gear down. What did it look like in person? Did it look like a 300, or could you tell the difference? It was far enough away that I couldn't really tell. I, I would say it definitely looked bigger than a 200, probably about the same size as a 777-300, but it was it was maybe a mile away from me. Denver is, the the runways at Denver are pretty far away from the terminal, so mm-hmm. I didn't really get a close-up view of it. Well, it didn't help you writing the uh, flight plan or the outline for this episode because you're trying to write the outline 
and yeah. you have all these distractions. I know. I said to you, I'm <laughs> trying to write the outline for this, and I just keep watching this airplane doing patterns and watching on Flight Radar 24, but we got it done. W- which lounge were you at at Denver real quick? Uh, I was so at we- the chalet. <laughs> <laughs> and which one did they... So we have names for these clubs. So you're at the chalet. If if one of our listeners is at this club, you will know why we call it's it a chalet. The B, the B East, you will, you will know. And they closed our our favorite. I do it in air quotes. They yeah. closed the nineteenth hole, which <laughs> the was the, the the B West, which felt like an outdated country club, <laughs> a golf course country club yeah. bar and grill. So we Doesn't called it, it the nineteenth like, hole. As or they Mulligans. It. Yeah, or Mulligans nineteenth hole par, tw- you know, twentieth and par. Or what I don't what, I don't know the golf terms. But doesn't it seem like when they cha- when they close the club, like the food changes too? Because the nineteenth hole or the old club probably had nachos and. I think it's because and- they expand the kitchen. Uh, yeah. They they know that they can do that. They expand the food options. They put the hot plates out there. Yeah, I spent a lot of time there. It was great. We've yeah. gone long. We do okay, have to yeah. we do yeah. have to move on. Drew, we talk a lot about Indian aviation, and you just returned from there. But that's not what we're going to cover in our opening topic. We're going to cover another place you just returned from, Finland talked a little bit about this already, but a recent New York Times article highlighted how Finnair bet big on its Helsinki hub for connecting flows to Asia due to its excellent geographical location on the Great Circle route. Unfortunately, due to the Russian overflight issues, this plan has backfired on them. How are they pivoting? I was happy to see that they are they have such a good business model there. They were able to pivot. So somehow they're making a profit still, and it's thanks to North America with their adding service. Helsinki Airport invested more than a billion dollars in infrastructure upgrades, and the city pitched itself as the shortest way to Asia, Doug. Finner's CEO, Toppy Manor, said the Asia strategy had been 20 years in the making. This includes the fact that the airline subtitled nearly half of its in-flight movies in Japanese and Korean and offered Asian food on its retooled menu prior to covid Half of the airline's revenue came from flights to Asia. Then came the Russian invasion and a nearly complete shutdown of Russian aerospace. This rendered Helsinki geographically isolated from Asia. So getting from Delhi to Helsinki, it was quite a circuitous route. It took about nine hours, and I could see before the restrictions, that flight getting there and... Just over seven hours, you know, just crossing over Russia, I can imagine. Last summer, Finnair operated just 76 weekly flights to Asia. This compared to 198 in the summer of 2019. System-wide, the airline is only at 68% of its pre-pandemic capacity, and it posted an annual loss of 270, uh, 217 million euros in 2022, and a loss of 1.3 billion euros over the previous three years. Tony Manor, the CEO, said, quote, we really have to regroup. Helsinki's new terminal was expected to process 30 million annual passengers by 2030, a number that local government has rescinded and has not updated. So they talked about uh, 2019, 198 weekly flights in 2019. So I found a route map from 2019. So I don't know if you can see that. All these destinations in Asia, uh, several in China, all those, most of those are gone now. They all and go. Th- I, yeah, they all go through Russia. Right through Russia. And they were flying to these small cities that you know, looks like Xiamen, CGK. I'm not even sure where that is. Shanghai, of course. So now, uh, as far as Asia, looking at their departure board for today or tomorrow, uh, they have Bangkok, Haneda, Delhi, Incheon, and Singapore. So still making it to those to those larger hubs, but it's about half of what they used to have. 
Finnair is now doing an about face in terms of all this expansion to Asia. The CEO said, we started to pivot our network to the West. It now flies to Seattle, Dallas, other North American cities, never previously served. I would like to see them in Washington, Dallas. I don't see them at Dallas for some reason. So I, I, would think that that might be in, our, in their future. It is also strengthening its partnership with other one world carriers such as American, British Airways, Qatar. Tony Manor finished by saying, we still believe in our st- strategy. Major infrastructure developments like airports are designed on a 50-year horizon. Putin is not going to be there forever. Let's hope that. That's what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Its pivot seems to be working. The airline announced a $200 million euro profit on Wednesday for 2023. Yep, so they're managing through this pretty well. I think that his assessment of Putin not being there forever is a is a good one. We talk about in aviation, so many people, especially now on social media, they're so short-sighted. They're talking about the next three months, the next six months, and we're in a possible recession. Why are airlines ordering hundreds of millions and billions of dollars of orders? Well, it's because you in the aviation industry, you have to look at the long game. I'm not saying you can't or you don't have to focus on the short game, you definitely do. There is no long game if you can't get through the short game. game. But in things like this, I agree with him. You are building for the future, and you'll pivot if you need to. 50 years from now, will Russia airspace be open again? Yeah, I would like to think so. I would hope so. I hope that it's five years out or less than that. Maybe it won't be. Who knows? But you still have to plan ahead and plan for these things. Helsinki has a gorgeous new airport. Uh-huh. I'm sure that you really enjoyed oh. being there. Have you been there? I haven't. So remember Copenhagen, how we thought it was very easy to get through, and it was like if IKEA made an airport, this is how it would be. This is like Helsinki was better. It was so easy going through there. In the morning, it was their rush hour, all this business traffic coming to the airport. We literally got to the airport an hour and 15 minutes prior. We were through security. It was busy, but it was so efficient. We had about 15 minutes in the lounge, which I was kicking myself because it was a nice lounge. It was very efficient. And mm-hmm. we were the last people. I mean, half an hour prior, we were the last people to board an A350. That's how efficiently they boarded. The boarding area was empty. The flight was kind of full. So they really have a good good product through there. That's great. Hopefully they can make it work. Drew, we're going to stay in Finland for our first news story of the week. Did you get weighed at the gate on your <laughs> flight to Efro? No, I would have offered to, but I, let's. Uh, we're going to talk about this, our feelings on this. <laughs> Finnair is starting a new pilot program where it's asking passengers to anonymous, anonymously volunteer to get weighed along with their carry-on luggage. The new program is so the airline can reset its weight and balance baseline for each flight. As it stands now, when airlines complete their final weight and balance numbers for each flight, passenger and carry-on numbers are just an estimate, which could possibly lead to weight and balance issues on flights. The airline plans to weigh 1,200 customers this winter and then do another program in the summer. Interestingly enough, I read, and it makes sense, mm-hmm. they said that during the winter, people wear heavier clothes because Finland is cold, of course, which is why they have to do both a, a winter weight and a summer weight. And apparently they do this every three years. This yeah. is not the first time Finnair has done this. A Finnair spokeswoman said, quote, we have communicated about this survey to Finnair customers and the first volunteers were proactively asking to take part even before the equipment was set up. We we're doing this for the purpose of aircraft balance and performance calculations that are needed for the safe operation of flights, unquote. Even though this is not the first time they're doing it, even though airlines have to do this, it's also been met with some pushback from advocates around the world who are lashing out at the airline for, quote, body shaming. One travel writer wrote, quote, Weighing passengers for airline safety reasons is appalling. I actually think it's humiliating. For me, flying is all about the experience, and as a frequent traveler, I think I'll skip Finnair, unquote. Really, it's appalling for safety reasons? 
This is all voluntary. They are not body shaming anyone. It's all anonymous. How is that appalling when an airline is doing this to get a more accurate reading of what customers weigh? It is voluntary and it's anonymous. How is that? It's voluntary. So if you feel uncomfortable about sharing your weight, you don't have to do it. I don't know why this is so shocking. I I would agree with Finnair. I don't think any airline really... I'm sure airlines have tried doing this. I know where it's very critical. There are airlines. Air New Zealand has done it. Air Air New Zealand just did it, and they got pushback. Fiji Airways just did it. They got pushback. I don't want to offend people, but I feel like sometimes people who have a voice in certain communities just speak really loudly to make their point known. And I think that that's what's going on with this pushback. I would say the fact that there were so many volunteers who Mm -hmm. stepped up and wanted to do it before it was even in place means that this is kind of a, a no deal. And it's it's good that the airline is doing this for safety Yeah, just reasons. to find out what actual weights are. But having said that, are their numbers going to be skewed less than what the actual weights are? Because someone who is a normal weight would be more willing, perhaps, than someone who weighs more, who may be self-conscious about their weight. So their numbers may skew lower than what it actually is. I would hope not. And I would think that because it's anonymous and the only people who see it are the people who are writing down yeah. the data, I would hope that people would not be shy, shying away yeah. from it. And it's like any any good survey, it has to be scientist, scientifically statistic. Mm. And, and they find ways to make sure that they are getting an accurate sampling. Right. They're, they're not just picking out a whole bunch of random yeah. people. There's a rhyme and a reason for it, and I would like to think that they'll get a, get the correct numbers and the correct yeah. answer. If they're doing it in terms of safety, there's nothing wrong with that. All right, Doug, we mentioned Russian overflight just now, and another topic we talked about last year was how hundreds of leased planes are trapped in Russia, more than 400 by some accounts. Leasing firms have recently reached settlements with Russia in, in amounts totaling more than $2.5 billion. This is a positive step. Will Putin leave Ukraine? We don't know. But there are little signs here that they're trying to reach out. And this is one of them, right? To reach out with the rest of the world and maintain connections. As a reminder, when the Russian invasion of Ukraine kicked off nearly two years ago, leased airplanes from Western companies became trapped in Russia following international sanctions. The recent agreement hands ownership of the aircraft over to Russian state insurance company NSK, which will then transfer ownership to the airlines themselves. The Russian government has earmarked nearly 300 billion rubles, or $3.3 billion, to purchase aircraft outright from the lessers. This agreement still leaves nearly $5.5 billion in losses yet to be settled for lessers. It's a start. This is important because these aircraft, when they fly to neutral countries, there's a chance that they could get impounded by these lessers. Maybe Russia has a good relationship with India. The plane gets to Delhi... Could it be impounded by ILFC or whomever owns these aircraft if they haven't made payments? So this will protect them, right? If that airplane is no longer owned by ILFC or one of these lessers. I think that Russia is probably begrudgingly doing this. And my guess is Aeroflot and some of the other airlines within Russia have really been pushing back on the regime saying, we need to own these airplanes. We need to get this figured out. We, we want to do this legally. We want to continue flying these airplanes to places not mm-hmm. have them repossessed. I think that the, the next thing that we need to figure out, though, is the safety of these airplanes. Because we've parts. seen reports about how some of these airplanes who can't get Western parts, they're having a lot of maintenance issues on these yeah. airplanes, safety issues on the airplanes. That, I think, is the next thing that we need to get figured out. Yeah, exactly. So I'm checking flights to uh, New Zealand for our trip, and I was checking flights to India. These Russian airlines are non-existent on these booking sites. 
So this is not good for Russian aviation. But the fact that they're willing to at least pay for the airplanes they have, that's that's a step, I think. We're going to go back to Asia for our final story this week. In a much-needed win for Boeing, Thai Airways confirmed an order for 45 787s. Thai's in the midst of a financial restructuring, and the latest order, which is scheduled to begin delivery in 2027, will not impact it emerging, emerging from bankruptcy protection. The airline has posted four straight quarterly profits, and Thailand is in the midst of a tourism revival, something the airline hopes will continue and can harness with the newest order. Thai Airways ended 2022 with just 64 aircraft in its fleet. It's projecting to have 90 on property by the end of next year, though the new order, once filled, will still leave Thai with fewer planes than at its height in 2013. I think you've said before, Drew, how Thai seems to have fallen off the map a little bit, Thai Airways at least. Oh yeah, it seemed to have, it was just a transition. I remember as a kid when my mom would go to Sri Lanka or the family would go, Singapore Airlines and Thai Airways, Korean, all of these were competing for that business. And then Thai just dropped off the map like about 10 years ago. It wasn't an option. But I remember the time when there were a real competition for Singapore Airlines. And if they had a better product, they could have been stronger than Singapore Airlines because Bangkok is better positioned in Asia for that inter-Asia and intercontinental traffic. It's, it has a bigger, we talk about the catchment area. Oh my God, Bangkok has billions of people around it with China just to the north, India to the east. There's a lot west. of promise. India, India In, to the west. India to the west. There's a lot of promise for Thai if they can make it work this time. Yeah, I think part of why Singapore has done so well, though, is the O&D traffic, which is the origin and destination traffic. Singapore is such a big business hub, whereas Bangkok is not. Right. That Singapore, they're doing just fine without that connecting traffic. Yeah, Singapore does have connecting traffic, but they have a lot of money in Singapore. A lot of businesses in Singapore with business people leaving Singapore and coming to Singapore, mm-hmm. not connecting through. And I think that's why Singapore is, has launched in the way that it has. Hopefully, this will get Thai back on the map. They might be too little too late because they're competing now with India with mm-hmm. the new Vistara Air India tie-up. We've talked about Philippines and Manila, who's trying to to build up a lot of places in Asia are trying to mimic the Singapore Airlines model. Yeah. And I, Thai could be a little bit too late on this. <laughs> well, so I'm going to differ with you on that. I'm sure traffic is booming in Southeast Asia. We talked about this uh, Indian traffic doubling between now and 2030. So there's going to be enough business for everyone. That's true. A rising tide lifts all boats, or in this case, is all airlines. Like you said, there's a lot of competition, so they need to offer a good product too. But definitely the traffic will be there if if they can attract it. Boeing scored a big win this week, but GE did as well. Thai chose the Gen X to power its 787s. The Gen X is one of two choices airlines have for 787 engines, with the Rolls-Royce 10 being the other. So just GE and Rolls-Royce, right? Just two engine choices for the 787, which one of is one of the most prevalent wide-body aircraft. It might supersede the 777 soon with all the, the sales of the 787. But Doug, if we go back to the 80s and 90s, airlines had way more choices for aircraft manufacturers as well as aircraft engines. For example, if you were looking for a, li- a large wide-body, you were United or American, you're looking for a new wide-body, you could choose the 747, you could choose the 767, the Airbus A300, the Douglas DC-10, or the Lockheed Delta 11. Not only that, If you chose a 747, for example, you didn't have just two choices, like on the 787. You could choose the GE CF6, the Pratt & Whitney 4000, or the Rolls-Royce RB211. So, so many choices and 
two and manufacturers competing for your aircraft business and then also for your engine business. And if we look at the 777X, which we just talked about, which I saw in Denver, they only have one option. They have a single a single option. Let's look at which wide body engine was the winner though in terms of how many aircraft it could power. Was it the Rolls-Royce RB211? This engine could be used on the 757, 747, L1011, and the TU204. <laughs> That's got to <laughs> be the winner, right? <laughs> Very versatile. Okay, you know what? I'm I'm going to digress here for uh-huh, just a second. Ahead. The fact that a western engine could uh-huh. be used on a Soviet, which then became Russian-designed airplane, shows that after the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia really wanted to integrate with the West, that they had a manufacturer, the TU-204, uh, with their TU-204, which is basically yeah. a 757 knockoff, if you can call it that, but powered by a Western engine that That's shows awesome. that they really were trying to get ingrained back with the West after the fall of the Soviet Union. And then what did they do after that? They bought A300s and then A330s and then A350s. 777s. 777s. A350s. 320s, 737s, all of those, yes. Yeah. All right, so we're thinking the RB211 is a winner, right? All those aircraft. No. The Pratt & Whitney 4000, Doug, could power the A300, the A310, the A330, the 747-400, the 777-777. The MD-11 and the 767 and the KC-46, the Pegasus, which to this day, you're still flying with PW-4000s. That's got to be the winner, right? That's, that's if you even if you count the A-300 and the A-310 as one aircraft type, that is still six aircraft. Not so fast, Drew. We think we have a winner, but we might have another one. The GE-CF-6 engine, you could hang on an A-300, A-330, 747, 767, DC-10, or as I flew, KC-10, MD-11, and now the C5 Galaxy after it got re-engined. Mm-hmm. Ding, ding, that's the winner. Seven. Seven. It was, the C- <laughs> it was the C5 Galaxy that pushed it over the top. Because yeah. until about 10 years ago, the Galaxy didn't have CF6s. Now they do. I would like to thank one of our contributors, Greg, who told us it was the GE CF6. Now, he might be biased, but uh, he was right. There was one of these that was missing in my calculations. I don't know if the DC-10 or the MD-11, one of those, which I didn't consider. So that brought the GE CF-6 to seven aircraft. Let's say you, you have flown one aircraft with the CF-6, right? Just the mm-hmm. DC-10. Yeah. You've flown on the Pratt & Whitney 4000. Pratt & Whitney 4000 is like the 737 of aircraft engines. It kind of keeps going. It's not on any of these new white bodies, though. It's not on a 787. It's not on an A350. Um, you fly it regularly, and you hate it <laughs> because it's yeah, underpowered. Oh, come on now. <laughs> I, I don't hate it, but I did make the comment to you that I'm flying brand-new airplanes. I flew a 46 a few weeks ago with 40 hours on it. Mm-hmm. I'm flying a brand-new airplane with an engine that was designed and initially built before I was even born. <laughs> right. Well, let me ask you a question. So I'm sure there are different thrust ratings. So you're flying basically a 767 with Pratt & Whitney 4000s. And you're also flying a triple seven with Pratt and Whitney four thousands. Mm-hmm. How are they different? Are they are they very much the same? The operation of them? The operation is the same, and the engine instruments we have on the screen are identical. But as mm. you mentioned, it's the thrust on the forty six. I fly Pratt and Whitney forty sixty twos. It's sixty two thousand pounds of thrust on the triple seven. Some of our older models, it's seventy seven thousand seventy seven thousand pounds of thrust uh-huh it's pretty interesting to me that they can take the same engine and basically govern it, it, it think of it yeah. like a golf cart everyone here has driven a golf cart 
you know for sure that a golf cart can go a lot faster than what it actually does. You put your foot to the floor and it right. tops out at whatever it is. Yeah. You know for sure it can go faster. It doesn't because of a governor. And that's basically what these engines are. They're the same engines. Uh-huh. And they're just governed in a way that on the 46, we don't need 77,000 pounds of thrust. Would it be nice to have it? Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. But the 46 or the 767-200 is a much smaller airplane than the 777-200. It yeah. doesn't need that much thrust. In fact, it could actually be dangerous because if you lose an engine on takeoff with full thrust, right, the if you have too much thrust, you may not be able to maintain control of the airplane, which is mm-hmm. part of the reason why they do this. 62,000 pounds of thrust. So take both of them. That is 124,000 pounds of thrust. On your 777-300, on one engine, you have 115,000 pounds of thrust. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love the 777-300. That, uh, the G90 is such an amazing engine. Yeah. Now, pretty cool. Doug, let's move on. So I just returned from London Heathrow, an airport you've been flying to a lot recently, possibly tomorrow, if you'd have a minute to check and tell me. <laughs> so I'm hoping to find out soon. I know we've said before that is the busiest airport in the world when taking into account the fact that they only use one runway for arrivals and a second runway for departures. This got me wondering, what is the process like in the flight deck getting off the gate and into the air in such a, at such a congested airport? I was going to ask you, what was your experience on your 767 going back to Washington when you left Heathrow? Yeah. Did you have a window seat? Were you able to look and see what was going on? Yeah, I had a window seat. And I got to say, it, it was no delay. We pushed from the gate a few minutes early and we taxied to the runway. I, I didn't remember a delay. But having said that... We departed at 5 p.m., which is not the busiest oh, time. Oh, true. Yeah, that's usually usually the the North American push is a little bit earlier. It really just depends on which runways they're using for arrival and departure. But normally, I, I'm just going to use, say, San Francisco, which is where I always leave out of San Francisco uh-huh. and go into other places. So I'll use San Francisco as the baseline, which is how most airports around the world are. Uh, sorry, most airports around the U.S. operate. We're sitting at the gate. We talk to ramp. We're on a ramp frequency. When we're all buttoned up, closed up, and the tug is on the airplane, the ground team, they'll call up and say, hey, we're ready to push. And then we go through our procedures. We talk to ramp. We push with ramp. They switch us to ground, and then ground switches us to departure or to tower. We talk to three people. We already have our IFR clearance, our instrument flight plan that comes through automatically in ACARS. We don't have to talk to anyone about that. Let's jump over to Heathrow now. Five minutes prior to our scheduled departure time, we have to call Heathrow clearance. Uh We check in, we tell them our stand number, we tell them the ATIS information, which is the weather information, telling them that we have it. We tell them our aircraft type, and we tell them that we're ready. They then will tell us either switch to ground, or sometimes if there's a delay, they'll keep us with them. And I've had it before where we sit at the gate all closed up, ready to push for 40 minutes. Wow. Because there are so many airplanes that they're trying to get out to the runway that they keep us at the gate, basically a gate hold, which you can see, I don't know if you've ever been delayed getting a gate going into Heathrow, but you can see how that would back up because I've had that before where we land and they say, your gate is occupied, we need to keep you somewhere. Yeah, Everyone go on Google Maps right now. Heathrow, with all the gates and everything that they have, they don't have a lot of concrete or taxiways to put airplanes that are waiting. Right. It's this choreographed dance of getting both to the gate and getting out of the gate. Mm-hmm. You can see where if you're departing right in the middle of a big bank, how this could really gum you up 
if clearance is not even allowing you to push off of the gate. It just seems like whenever I'm departing Heathrow, it's always on that north runway on the right. right. Yeah, 27 right. Is that I'd say it's 50-50. I I don't know Hmm. what the reason is that they'd switch sometimes between the arrival and departure runway. Mm -hmm. I would say 50% 50 of the time I've departed on 27 right. 50% 50% of the time, 2-7 left. It's really hit or miss. I don't know what the rationale is. But after clearance pitches us over to ground, then we have to check in with ground, tell them that we're ready to push. They'll push us back. Again, I'm asking all the listeners, pull up a, a Google Google map shot of Heathrow right now. If you look at the runway, there are about three or four intersecting taxiways and loops that you can get to both 2-7 right and 2-7 left. What they will do is they will stack planes on all of those. So when we get our takeoff data, we get takeoff data for an intersecting runway, which means basically we're going to be taking off a little bit farther down the runway, not using the entire thing. We get our takeoff data for an intersection so that we can accept any one of the possible departure points on the runway. And unlike in the U.S., Heathrow will actually put two or three airplanes on the runway at a single time. I've had it before... 2-7 2-7 right, we got on at the, the farthest entry point for the mm-hmm. longest runway. There were two airplanes on the runway in front of us, and we they were cleared for takeoff in order. We are sitting on the runway watching two airplanes in front, <laughs> in of, front us. of you. Both That's get, crazy. Both get cleared for takeoff. <laughs> wow. Yeah, somehow they make it make it work. The We had that departure delay out of Helsinki for 20 minutes, and then approaching London, the captain said that we're holding for five minutes. So mm-hmm. really nothing That's major. That's pretty common. So. Yeah, Yeah. pretty common in London to hold. Okay, now it's time for the part of the show where one of us confesses to making mistakes on the previous show or shows. I'm going to take the hit this time, Drew. Several listeners reached out saying I was mistaken in my Taylor Swift reporting from a couple episodes ago. Her concert was actually a day earlier than what I said, giving her nearly an extra 24 hours to make the trek to Vegas for the Super Bowl. See what I get, Drew, for using People Magazine online as my source? (laughs) Oh, that's from, so People Magazine had it wrong, because we were, I mean, if you went by that, and then, yeah, some people did say, oh, she's arriving there 24 hours before, but that wouldn't have been as as good for content, so I'm glad you went with the day of. We did not try and make this up, I promise. (laughs) We we were not doing this for the pizzazz of the show, unlike probably People Magazine. They were trying to get the clicks. Right. (laughs) I apologize if anyone subscribes to People Magazine, but that was the source that I used. All right, we'll forgive you this time, Doug, but let's talk about something else, and then we promise we'll be done talking about Taylor Swift. Her Bombardier Global Express completed the 5,700-mile flight from Haneda to Los Angeles in under nine hours. This is on average 30 to 60 minutes faster than most commercial flights on the same route in the last week. Was she riding the the uh, El Nino or something? It seems really fast. Well, if fast, she was, then planes... everyone else was. If she was, everyone else was doing that, too. Yeah. This goes to show that these, some of these business jets, the Cessna Citation X is, I, I believe, and listeners can correct me, I yeah. believe it's the fastest business jet on the market. It can cruise at Mach Decimal 9.5 or somewhere thereabouts. Wow, that's amazing. That is just 5% below the speed of sound, which yeah. is well above what my max maximum operating mock is on the triple there's a 7500 coming out i don't know if it's a bombardier or it's that it's if it's Gulfstream. we talked about it on an earlier episode we'll get back to it but it, it is getting close to reaching the speed of sound yeah i think in flight testing we talked about how they actually broke the speed of sound on accident <laughs> i wonder what happens when they break I mean, well they're not supposed to over land but i guess 
if they want to do it over the ocean, they could, I guess. Well, it would exceed the operating limit of the airplane. Mm. I know the engineers have a a tolerance on that, which is Mm -hmm. why nothing really happened to it in testing. And it proves that they could do it. But if you look at the the design of these airplanes, the wing sweep is just so great. I'm not comparing it to like a Delta wing fighter. And part of the reason why fighter airplanes can go above the speed of sound with no issues is uh-huh. because of the shape of their wing. It's right. it's meant to break the sound barrier. Look at a, a Global Express. The wing sweep is ridiculous on that airplane. It, it comes back at a, a pretty tight angle yeah. compared to think of like a Dash 8 or an ATR where the mm-hmm. wing is literally straight out. You cannot go very fast on a straight wing airplane because it's just not built to handle the airflow like that. Doug, I have to tell you, we talked about this a little bit. So shout out to Priyank, who is the cousin of my buddy Chetan, who uh, I went with to India. Turns out he has a lot of connections. So I, he was he was fascinated by the podcast. So the, I told him the last time we were in, in I was in India, I actually mentioned our conversation that we had over dinner about what airlines they like as Indians, right? He listened to that episode and he has now gotten us in touch with the chief operating officer of Akasa. Her name is Nilu, and uh, she's going to be on the show event, you know, as her schedule allows. So she said this next week is kind of busy because they're starting international service. So I don't know why she wouldn't be able to, to break away for the extra <laughs> podcast. <laughs> she has a very interesting story. She went to the Air Force first. She got a business degree, and now she's with the airlines. Hopefully we can get her on. So uh, Priyank, if you're listening, or Nilu, if you're listening, we would love to have you on and we can talk more about India <laughs> on a future episode. Yeah, it's embarrassing that it's an airline that we both admitted about a month ago to not really remembering about. And now we yeah. might have one of their executives on. <laughs> we apologize for that. Hopefully she doesn't listen to this episode or that one. Well, it's like we have these um, executives from these startups that start with A and have, what is it, five letters? So we had <laughs> Avello and now we have Akasa, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know. It's just coincidence. To our friends and contributors, this podcast is your show. So go on our website, nextripnetwork.com. Let us know what's on your mind so we can talk about it or give us your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at Next Trip Podcast. Please tell your friends about us so we can reach more people who love aviation and travel. All right. A lot of our contributors love to rant about things, sometimes mistakes we made, sometimes things they, they emphatically agree with. Call it in. <laughs> Call it in so that everyone can hear your rant. So call our Google Voice number. The number is 872-529-5620. When calling from the U.S., make sure to use the country code 001 or plus one when calling from abroad. Thanks to all of our friends and contributors for your support and for joining the conversation. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, stay aviation tough. This has been the Next Trip Podcast. Visit nexttripnetwork.com for information about previous episodes, trip reviews, aviation photos, and other aviation-related content. This is your show, so search for The Next Trip on Twitter and let Doug and Drew know what you want to talk about. Not on Twitter? You can also email them at nexttrip.podcast at gmail.com. Please consider leaving a review wherever you download your podcasts. It will help other listeners like you discover this show. All right, to our friends and contributors, this podcast is our show, so go on our website. Next. No, it's to your our show. Friends and con- <laughs> to our friends and contributors. <laughs> blame it on jet lag. <clears throat> To our you don't friends have jet lag. Con- jet lag from Denver. No, I'm I'm making fun of you. <laughs> Thanks. All right. I don't have jet lag. <laughs> <laughs>